you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. This is Rich Roll, and you're listening to Silver Guy Radio. Yo, what's up? Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks to Humans for bringing us in. Thanks to you for supporting the show. I'm Shane Raymer, and you're listening to the Friday episode of That Sober Guy Podcast. Uh, today's guest is Nathan Rich. Uh, Nathan was born in Hollywood to a Scientologist family, and uh, after being sent to the infamous, abusive Mace Kingsley Ranch twice, not once, but twice, uh, he escaped and was disowned by his family. Uh, he spent seven years as a homeless drug addict before turning his life around. Uh, Nathan appeared on the Scientology uh, and the Aftermath uh, series produced by ex-Scientologist and actress Leah Remini, and uh, he's since written a memoir uh, called My Survival of a Cult, Abandonment, Addiction, and Homelessness. And uh, we're going to talk to Nathan today. I'm super pumped to talk with him. Uh, but before we get to Nathan, be sure to check us out at thatsoberguy.com for past episodes and resources. Uh, you can also connect with us on Instagram, at realthatsoberguy, and on Twitter, at Shane Raymer. We've got a live show coming up at Journey Coffee in Vacaville, California, October 18th. Uh, come drink some coffee with us, hang out. We're going to be talking about recovery and community. Um, we'd love to see you there. You can go to thatsoberguy.com and click on the live events tab if you'd like some more info. Uh, and then also check out the TSG, That Sober Guy merch store. We got men's shirts, shirts for ladies, hoodies, uh, the zip up hoodies, my favorite. Got some coffee mugs. I think there's even a sick TSG phone case. I think about it. Uh, we all on our phones. We have our phones all the time. Unfortunately, that's not always a good thing, trying to limit myself on that tip, uh, but what a better way to stay connected to your recovery by having a phone, a little logo, little TSG phone case to remind your ass uh, every time you pick that dumbass phone up. <laughs> uh, help support us, support your recovery, get your merch today, that's soberguy.com, click on the store tab. Uh, I want to read a quick email and then we're going to get to Nathan here. Uh, this says, hey, Sharon, I just wanted to reach out and let you know how much your podcast has been helping me as I try to navigate the sober life. I recently celebrated one year, uh, recently, I recently celebrated my one-year anniversary, and I dare to say that I'm happy. Uh, P.S., we have a seven-pound white long-haired chihuahua, and I'm the only one that walks her. I'm 6'1 and 250 pounds. I also wonder what people think of me when she prances around with her pink harness, but she's so damn cute. I don't care. Michael from Brooklyn. Uh, number one, Michael, thanks, man, for reaching out. Much love from Cali to Brooklyn, and congrats on your one year. And then for those of you who didn't hear last Friday's episode, I believe it was titled, um, Does It Make Me a Pussy If I Walk a Small Dog? Because I had this thought as I was walking my small dog around the neighborhood. Damn, people probably look at me and think, look at this pussy walking this small-ass dog. So I kind of proposed that question, and uh, Michael being 6'1 and 250 uh, says he doesn't give a shit. I don't give a shit either. So, Michael, thank you so much, man. Much love to you and all the homies out in Brooklyn. Uh, Nathan Rich, all the way from China. What's up to you, man? How are you? 
How's it going, Shane? Before we even get started, I just have to mention one thing. Yes. Which is that in China, one of the differences that you notice between America and China is that in China, all the house husbands, all the manly dudes, all the tough guys, they all walk the dogs and they don't have big dogs here because it's all apartments. <laughs> so every morning I can go outside and I can see some big tough dude smoking a cigarette, you know, wearing like a wife beater shirt. Walking a tiny little poodle. <laughs> that is epic right there, bro. That is great. So no no big dogs, no German shepherds, no pits, like n- none of that out there. It's all little. Not little. at all. Yeah, because they just have, you know, there's no houses. It's all apartments. Yeah. There's too many people. Um, but it's great to be on your podcast. You know, I've listened to, to several of your episodes, you know, uh, especially more recent ones. And I think it's great what you're doing. You know, it's talking about sobriety. Um, talking about recovery is something that um, is important to people that, that need to hear that kind of thing. It's something yeah. that I didn't have myself. I didn't have the opportunity to, you know, when I was going through my kind of uh, problems, you know, I didn't have a podcast to listen to, mm. you know, I don't even think podcasts existed back then. Yeah. Uh, so it's great. Yeah, man, I uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And and we we chatted a little bit before I hit the record button. And uh, yeah, I mean that's what this is about. It's about talking about recovery, trying to get people together, provide additional resources. You know, of course, in in addition to any different types of programs or whatever anyone's going through. And also, man, it's really just to have some fun too. I mean, how many of us in recovery? I hear I get that question a lot. Like, well, how? If I'm sober, how am I still going to have fun? Like, there's all types of ways to have fun. There's all types of things you can do. Uh, you don't have to be some lame duck, uh, you know, because uh, you're sober. It's actually, you know, the best time of my life being sober. And I found that, you know, it ain't easy all the time. Uh, and it's taken some time to learn that. But, um, hey, r- real quick, too, I wanted to mention um, uh, your book. And I, uh, I know the, the memoir, can you pronounce the title for me, the, the beginning title? Because I said the, the second part, but I didn't want to mess up the first part. So I wanted to let you do that. Sure. So the title of it is Scythe Telepo. Okay. And so Scythe is kind of like the Grim Reapers, you know, tool, the mm-hmm. tool that you would use, to, you know, before, before people had lawnmowers. And Telepo <laughs> is not a real word. It's just T-L-E-P-P-O. Okay. And uh, when I was writing the book, you know, I looked up, uh, uh, advice for titling books. And they said, don't, don't use anything that's hard to remember and don't use anything that's hard to spell. And I said, ah, well, too bad. <laughs> I'm going to call it, you know, the, the title is one of those titles where if you don't haven't read the book, it doesn't really make any sense. But once you read the book, hopefully you think to yourself, there's no way he could have called it anything else. That is the title yeah. of this book. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the book covers my, um, you know, it's a memoir, so it's not, it's not an autobiography, meaning it doesn't include every single thing about my entire life. It, it focuses mostly on um, how I was raised and how I ended up eventually being homeless and addicted and how I eventually got out of that. Mm. So, uh, it, you know, it, that's kind of the difference between a memoir and an autobiography. It's not like a sort of boring documentary style book where I'm telling you every fact and detail and date. It's more just a, a story of here's what happened in my life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my story really is that I was, I was born in LA and I was born to a, a Scientologist family. Um, and, uh, very, 
you could say devout Scientologist uh, family. Um, and I just kind of never took to it. It wasn't my thing. And I was kind of rebelling against it. Um, and because, you know, we're here to talk about addiction, I'm not going to really get sidetracked into a lot about the sort of, you know, cult ideas and all the, the, the Scientology stuff. But suffice to say, I wasn't into it. And they sent me to this um, kind of boarding school to sort of correct me back into believing into it, right, when I was eight. And that was a very abusive place. Um, and that was on uh, Scientology in the aftermath. They talked about that place. There was, there was you know, beatings and other psychological and physical um, uh, abuse. And uh, so then when I got that, out of that there, was the That was the ranch, right? Yeah. The, so that place was called the Mace Kingsley Ranch, or the ranch for short, or the MK Ranch. And I, I saw, um, I want to say it was the, the Kingsley lady in the interview, man, she was, she was creepy looking, man. She was, <laughs> she had the red hair and the, uh, yeah. is that her? Yeah. So that's Carol Kingsley. That's yeah. probably where you, did you see my attack video? Like my attack Bro, page? So, so let yeah. me just say real quick, man. And, and you said where you're, you're more than welcome to get into as high level or as deep as you want to go on, on this, but I usually, you know, do at least about an hour of pre-production stuff before I go on with, with the guests. You know what I mean? I want to learn a little bit and get in. Bro, I found myself like, like four hours deep, like digging and, and just like, whoa. I mean, I, and I had, I had heard um, uh, Leah's interview on Joe Rogan, like uh, this probably a year ago. My, my, my wife and I, we were coming back from Tahoe, I think. And, um, you know, I listen to Joe's podcast quite often and, and I had put that one on. So I had known a little background about what was going on and kind of her story, uh, the series, I, I, I want to say it had already came out or it was just about to launch or somewhere around there. Um, so I was familiar with it. But then, you know, after you reached out to me, I started digging into this more, bro. I mean, there's so much, there's so much to that, man. And, and um, it's, it's obviously, it's, an, it's interesting. And at the same time, it's, um, it sounds like it's, it's pretty jacked up too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, Scientology's got a lot of problems um, and it had a lot of problems being a kid growing up in it, you know. And yeah. uh, so last year, I think it was, uh, it was last year when Leah Remini was on uh, Joe Rogan, she, she was promoting the second season. Uh, so there was already a first season. So I was on the second season. And, uh, so, you know, my episode is, uh, or that, you know, it's not just my episode. There's somebody else on there too. My friend, uh, Tara Riley. Yeah. Um, but the episode that I was in is, is, uh, episode seven and it's called the ranches. And, uh, it's about, it focuses on these, these Mace Kingsley ranch. And the reason that they called the ranches plural is because the ranch moved later. And so there's kind of two different ranches and I went to both of them actually. So lucky me. Um, yeah. So the first, the first one, there was, you know, uh, there was a, there was beatings and there was, um, uh, you know, kind of sick and um, messed up punishments, including, you know, there was, there was child molestation and the guy running the place um, uh, it, admitted to molestation. And it, it's a whole, it's a whole uh, nightmare um, there. And that was out in Palmdale. Yeah. And so I, I was there for about eight months. Um, well, so, well, one, of the, one of the things too, I wanted to point this out just for, for those out there listening too, because I, when, I, when I was doing some pre-production on this too, I said, okay, I've heard a lot of stuff about Scientology. I've heard about, you know, people's stories, what it is. 
in all fairness and, and somewhat, let me, let me look into this myself. Let me see what, science, what they claim it is, right? So what I found was the idea that you will be and can be your best self for you and the planet. That was kind of the, the basis of, of what I came across, at least to my understanding. Um, can you kind of give very, very briefly, like, is that accurate? Or like for someone out there listening who has only heard the word Scientology, they don't know what the hell it is. Like, what is the basis of it? If, if there's any more to it that I missed? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of like the, I don't want to say the sales pitch, but that's kind of the, like what they're saying the benefit might be. Right. So if you're, if you ask a Christian, what, what do you believe? And they yeah. tell you, well, we can, um, you know, we have grace and love and we can all get along. That's not real. That's not really an answer. That's not necessarily what, what the religion is specifically about. That's sure. the benefits of being a part of that religion. And so that answer is kind of like what they would say that the benefits are. And then the, the, the separate thing from that is, well, what are the specific beliefs that they have? And so the specific beliefs that they have are, you know, it's very complicated and long, but, but essentially the point is that we are all these eternal uh, beings that are used to be godlike. And now we're, you know, we've, we're, we've, we're sort of in our own prisons of control. Like we don't have any power anymore and doing, you know, by that religion, um, you know, you could unravel all that and go back to your native godlike state. So it's not a religion in the traditional sense in that there's not a deity, there's not a, a higher power that you're resigning to, there's, not a, um, there's no prayers, there's no, um, you know, there's no offsetting of responsibility or destiny, there's no, yeah. none of that type of stuff. It's all you, you, you. Well, and that's, and, and, and that's, uh, that's one of the things my wife said, so... So, you know, so they don't have a God. And I said, well, L. Ron Hubbard was the creator of Scientology, right? Is it looked at as he's kind of the God in a sense? Uh, if you ask a Scientologist that, they'll say no. But some of the ex-Scientologists talk about it now in retrospect, kind of like, wow, we sort of treated that guy like a God because we believe everything he says. Yeah. We cannot question it, et cetera. You know? but, but, but we didn't literally view him as an unkillable an all-knowing God. Got it. And, and I cover a lot of this uh, in the book, actually. Um, the book is a bit more about Scientology. It's, it's kind of, if I had to say what it was about, it's obviously all about me, but it covers a lot of Scientology, and it, and it also covers a lot of homelessness and addiction. And the way that I talk about Scientology in the book is not for ex-Scientologists. It's for people like you who maybe heard of it and don't really know. Yeah. I don't try to like explain the entire thing. I try to tell my story, but I explain things here and there that might need to be explained. And, and as you get through the story, you kind of get an idea of how they look at life and you know, what they're all about. Because I was in the, the depths of it. I mean, I was a baby growing up in it. You know? Yeah. Um, well, and that's... And so, that's one of the things I was over at my, uh, my, my uh, mother and father-in-law's last night. And, um, and we were talking a little bit about it and we were talking about that. Like when you're a kid, no matter what religious organization or whatever it is, if your parents put you in that, you don't really have a choice. So you're growing up in that. That's really all you know. And to break that, that mental prison or that, that, that state of mind that all you know has got to be, it's got to be a, um, a, a pretty, pretty challenging thing. And I, I think that's what we're about to get into here in a minute. But um, yeah. yeah, so go ahead, go ahead, man. Go ahead. 
Yeah, so I had to do that while I was homeless. So we're gonna we're gonna find uh, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna find out how fun that was. So, so so take it back to the ranches. I think that's kind of where we left off. You had mentioned that you were at both ranches at some point. Maybe, maybe start start there. Right. So when I was eight years old, I was at the first incarnation of this ranch, which was uh, the more physically abusive of the two. This was, uh, you know, on the episode that I was on in um, Aftermath, they play an audio uh, sample, uh, an audio recording of the guy who ran the place uh, hitting a child and, and yelling at him and stuff. It's real. So I was at that ranch with that guy. So that was the one when I was eight. And then um, um, my whole family, I never had a father because uh, him and his side of the family were disconnected from. One of the things that Scientologists are, are into is disconnecting from people who are against Scientology or not strong supporters of it or, what, or you know, it's, there's some complications there. But basically, oftentimes they get disconnected. So I never knew my father or my father's side. I had no siblings. So, and my mother was 22 when she had me, so she was quite young. And all my aunts and, you know, grandparents lived in other cities. So it was always just me and my mother. So I got sent away to this, uh, this place. And um, my grandfather was the only other person who wasn't a Scientologist in the family. He died while I was in there. So then I got taken out. That's how I left. And then they, the whole family moved to Florida. And that's because that's the headquarters of Scientology, a certain yeah. place in Florida. So we all moved out there. All their little creepy suits they walk around in. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I, I call them the uh, sailor outfits. The yeah, sailor they, yeah, they do look so, like that. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so then, um, you know, I'm going to skip ahead of uh, some of this stuff. But basically what happened is um, seventh grade rolled around. And by this time now, I had never once finished one single grade of school because all of the grades that I had been to, uh, all of the schools I had been to were Scientology schools. And I just... I just didn't want to do Scientology. I was just pushing back and I would get kicked out. And um, I had skipped three grades. So I skipped uh, preschool and I skipped uh, uh, second grade and fifth grade. But I just had like no schooling, no, no chance. Yeah. And I happened to get into a private school that was a non-Scientology school for the first time in my life. And I did excellent there very, very well for two years, seventh and eighth grade. I know this sounds a little boring, but it's leading up to something. No, you're good, man. Dude, no, all good. So, so I had the first time in my life I was doing well in school, but then I had to enter into high school, okay? And for high school, I, I no longer was going to have the same one teacher that I had in seventh and eighth. Mm -hmm. And this teacher, Frank Unitowski in, in, at Dunedin Academy, he was the, basically the reason that I was able to do so well. He was my first male mentor that was an expert in his field. I was learning from him. I wasn't learning about Scientology stuff anymore. Now I was learning math and science and reading yeah. and English and the world and social studies. So I got really excited. I did really well for two years. They even called me the the middle the junior high valedictorian, which is kind of like you know. A, well, and, a and thing, no, that's 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 awesome too. And and the fact that you don't you know you grew up without a father. Here's this man who's teaching you, uh, kind of somewhat probably how how to be a man, how to learn. Um, and like you said, a mentor. That's that was probably some. Not only are you learning, um, you know, math, English, history, all that worldly stuff, but you're also, um, you're also building a relationship there, which sounds like it was uh, probably one of the first healthy relationships that you had. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and part of the reason I was learning that stuff was for him, yeah. you know, and I, and I, and I, and I discuss this a bit in the book as well, but 
my um, my mother did something to him later that was kind of like a betrayal to me. Uh, she wrote a report on him and turned it into Scientology, basically saying that she thought he might be gay and that he didn't. She didn't know if some others. You know, basically, she couldn't believe that I was getting good grades, and she kind of attacked mm. this relationship that I had with him, and that was a real uh, a real backstab for me. So then. Um, high school's coming in and now I, I can't have him for all of the grades. Right. So, so now I have all these different um, teachers for all the different classes and he's, I only get like two electives with him and I'm really in trouble. I've only finished two school, uh, two school years. Uh, freshman year starts. This is now 1996. Um, and, uh, and basically what happens is I end up uh, trying to find a way out. How do I get out of this situation? I got thrown out of a window at school. There was kids selling drugs. I wasn't into drugs. I, I wasn't into anything. I hadn't yeah. drank alcohol. I mean, the worst thing I had done was smoke cigarettes at that point. And uh, so I actually joined those guys at in what's called the Sea Org. So I was wearing the uh, sailor outfits yeah. for the festival. Okay. <laughs> that my was idea Fort uh, Fort Lauderdale? No, it's in Clearwater. Or Clearwater, near, Florida. Near so Fort Lauderdale. Lauderdale. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, not far. So, uh, so I, my idea was to get away from all this pressure to do Scientology, ironically, by joining the headquarters of Scientology, because those guys are always working. They don't really do much of the Scientology stuff. Yeah. So it's a little confusing. But the point is, I tried to get away, and then I didn't, I didn't do well there, and I sort of dropped out of there. And so then I was stuck like in between school years again for ninth grade. And my mother had had enough of me, so she sent me back to the ranch again. Um, only this time, I didn't go willingly. They actually, the security guards, I woke up to them on my bed in the morning, and they quite literally dragged me kicking and screaming out of my house and stuffed me in a car and, uh, and sent me out to New Mexico. When in I was Calgary, 14. 14. That's, yeah. yeah, so I was 14, and... Um, and I was there this time for three years straight. And I became known as the kind of most neglected kid there over those three years because every Christmas, every birthday, every, you know, sibling's birthday or uncle's birthday, most kids would get a present or would go home or would see that their parents would visit them. But me, I was not even allowed to communicate with my family at all in any way for those three years by their request. So by, your, by um, your family's request, my mother specifically asked the ranch to not let me communicate with them anymore. So this was the beginning. I mean, there was a many beginnings, but this was yeah. the real, real, real beginning of like serious problems are happening. So I was there for three years. And um, by the time I had got sent there when I was 14, the worst sort of chemicals that I had done is I, I got drunk one time with ironically kids from the previous ranch. Um, I had smoked cigarettes. That's it. I'd never mm. even seen weed, nothing. And back then weed was like a even bigger sort of deal. You know, it was more illegal everywhere and everything. And I hadn't even seen it. And, um, at the ranch, basically uh, about two and a half years into it, by then I had been there longer than everybody else. I was just kind of the old man of the ranch. And um, one of my good friends there had left and came back. Now he was a staff member. Okay, mm -hmm. So he didn't, they didn't watch him. He could do whatever he wanted. Long story short, he started smuggling in weed 
and alcohol first time a bottle mm-hmm. of rum and uh, uh some weed and then uh because he was actually from nearby albuquerque because this ranch was in new mexico mm-hmm. so he would go to his friends and then he started sneaking in more so then he started sneaking in methamphetamine mm-hmm. cocaine lsd and then at that time we settled on doing lsd because if you remember, we're stuck in this ranch and there's all this night watch and securities everywhere. You can't really get away with alcohol because what are you going to do with the bottle? You know, where are you yeah. going to put that? You can't, we, you can't just keep burying them. Someone's going to find them. And like weed is the smoke is everywhere. It's obvious smell and et cetera, et cetera. But LSD is just liquid or you just store it on some paper. They, hmm. They're never going to know what that is. And they, you know, as long as you have some sunglasses on to hide your dilated pupils and you can figure out how to sort of act normal during the day or whatever, they can't smell it. There's no smoke there, you know? So we started doing a lot of LSD and that was where I really started getting into to drugs. And then basically what happened is I was turning 18 and that ranch wanted to have like a success story. They didn't want me to just leave when I was 18 without having like cured me quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so they just, pushed me through the program super quickly, like literally in like in two months. And the program normally take about a year and a half. So they just crammed me through it at the last moment. So I quote unquote graduated that place and then got sent back home. And um, so now I'm arriving in Florida again with a drug problem, right? Um, not technically addicted to anything because I'm doing LSD, which isn't, which isn't physically addictive, but I'm definitely in a lot of pain in a lot of escapism. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so that's how I got out and that's basically how it started. You know, I think that's a good, that's a good point you bring up. You say I wasn't necessarily addicted, um, but at least to the, to the drug per se, but you're addicted to, or you've learned how to escape your reality because you don't want to deal with stuff. So here's the best way. I don't have to deal with this shit. Let me get high, take LSD, whatever it is. Now I can kind of escape that and get out of it. Um, and how you did that for a couple of years, right? For two, at least a year, right? Well that, yeah. So the LSD lasted, uh, for a few months, but we were doing it every day, every day, every day. And then every day and every night for weeks at a time, we would even do it. Even if we didn't have enough to get us high, we would like, maybe if we had half a hit and we already had a high tolerance, we would just do it anyway, just to do it. We were just (laughs) escapism, you know, you're not thinking anymore. And so then I was 17 and I was back in Florida and my mother got me hooked up with this job, which is where she was working, which was also Scientologist. And then I got this girlfriend who was also a Scientologist and her father was a Scientologist also working at that Scientology place. My mother's pressuring me even more to go into Scientology uh, auditing, which is basically counseling and courses. So long story short, I'm back to hundred percent, you know, indoctrination mode and the pressure is even higher because she thinks I just finished this program and I'm all reformed and ready to, to be one of them. And meanwhile, I'm even further from them, from my family than I was when I left because I've been massively betrayed. Now yeah. I, I have to apologize to them and make it seem like I did all this wrong stuff. And by then I'm already forming this habit of, of, of taking drugs. So then I started taking ecstasy with my girlfriend at the time because she was a Scientologist, but she apparently wasn't really into it either. So we started doing a lot of ecstasy down in Ybor City in, in, uh, in Tampa, Florida. 
and that would last just a couple months. But it, you know, I had this knack for going very intense with things. I mean, yeah. in a couple of months, I built my tolerance up where I was doing. I, I the, the most I did was eight double stack TNTs, which if anybody out there knows that stuff, it's that's a lot. Yeah, for a two month user, you know, I was doing too much, and um, and I ran away. I just said I can't take this anymore. I'm not going to be a Scientologist, and I went to go live with the same guy who had who had been getting the drugs in the first place. Okay. So I went to Washington, still 17, freshly ran away. And then I almost immediately called my mom again and was like, I'm sorry. I was regretting it. I wanted to go back. And she told me in no unclear way, don't talk to us again. We don't want you. I don't want to hear from you more. I asked for my aunt's number. She said, no, she turned me down completely. The only thing that she said that she would give me was the number to some guy that I didn't even know who worked at a Scientology organization up in Seattle that I could go there and maybe I could talk to him and maybe do some services. And that was it. So, so in 1999, she cut all ties. So basically she was, she was so indoctrinated, indoctrinated from Scientology from that lifestyle that if you didn't go along with that, then you were X'd out completely pretty much. That was my biggest sin of my whole life until then was not being a Scientologist. Bro, that is so crazy, man. Like, and you mentioned the auditing too. I saw a little bit about that um, in some stuff I was looking at uh, yesterday. And I couldn't, what's that little machine? There's like a little machine that they, that they were looking at that there was like a lever or a needle on it and it was showing like the energy or whatever. Can you, exp I, I don't yeah. want to get us too far off, but that was like, that was some crazy shit right there. Yeah. So that's, that's, they just call that an e-meter and uh, which I think is it's short for something like electro psychometer or something stupid, but they call it an e-meter. And basically what it, what it is, is it, it's sending an electrical current from one can, you know, to the other. And you are the, the, you know, the thing connecting the two, you're the conduit, right? So you hold one can in one hand and one in the other, and a, a small electrical current goes through you. You can't feel the current. And basically what it's measuring is the changes in resistance. Okay. Mm. So, uh, you know, naturally everybody, obviously you can, you can conduct some, some electricity and it's, it's just measuring the, the resistance. Now that doesn't sound too weird, but why are they doing it is where it starts to get a little bit weird. So the reason that they're doing that is that they think that, um, all of your memories from all of time. And when I say all of time, I mean all of their concept of time, which is quite literally many, many quadrillions of years, not billions, not trillions, quadrillions of years, which is way, way longer than anyone's saying that the age of the universe could possibly be. There's nobody that says it could, would be that, that yeah. far. But anyway, so, um, they think that we've all been around that long and that every moment of that entire um, you know, time, we've been recording things around us. So we're basically like a walking security camera and we store all this information with us. And though each picture, each individual, let's say, frame of our video has an electrical charge to it for some reason. And so when they... You know, when you sit in auditing, they'll, they'll, they'll ask you something like, let's say they, they might say, have you ever, you know, gotten in a fight? And what the principle is that with, just by them saying that, you'll immediately think of a time that you had a fight and that thought will have electrical charge and they'll mm -hmm. read, you know, the, the needle will move and then they'll say, oh, what was that? And they'll start to talk to you about that type of thing. And is that auditing? 
That's uh, that's okay. auditing. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, and that's what your mom wanted you to do. She wanted you to be an auditor and sit behind the desk and basically, um, the way I see it is you're infiltrating people's minds really in, in some sort of sense. You are. Yeah. That's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're getting into the nitty gritty details and every angle and every intersection and every left turn and right turn all within somebody's mind to basically, you know, go through and do these like processes like, Oh, we're yeah. going to make you do this and we're going to make you do that. And that's why it's also called processing, auditing or processing or being in session. It's all the same thing. So she wanted me to be an auditor. And the thing about Scientology is if you go high up in it, you have to also be an auditor. You can't just be the person getting it. Well, cause so, you're, fill, you're filling out reports on this shit too, right? So basically you're, you're creating files on, on people who all of their thoughts, the places they've been, where every, everything is, um, is in great detail about from the inside of their minds to the out external stuff that they're doing, right? Yeah, exactly. And th those are called PC folders. And so I've got somewhere around 14 huge folders filled Damn. with ev literally everything I've ever done with Scientology. And that's actually one of the things that I wanted to, to sue them for or somehow get them back. Because the thing is, um, when I ran away at 17 and then my mother told me, look, don't come back. I don't want to see you again ever. That was the last time I ever saw her. And I didn't know that crazy, bro. at the time, obviously. So the thing is, all of that sessions and auditing, all that stuff I did, I was a minor for all of it, 100% yeah. of it. I never did one second when I was an adult. And so that's like, it just seems to me like, why would they be allowed to have all of this personal information about me when my mother's, she's passed away and I didn't have a father and I was a minor when this all happened. So yeah. I don't know talk to a lawyer or something but you're right they have all this documentation about so, that, so that's and that's something you're actively trying to or at least you're thinking about trying to get back is that info that time that you spent there uh you weren't an adult how legally can they can they do that basically yeah and i i think probably what they would have done is that they would have had some kind of either power of attorney type of mm. signatures or some permission from my mother yeah. But I, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I suspect that I could say, okay, well, even if that was valid at some point, there, there's no reason it would be valid now. The people that signed it were dead and the people that it's about are yeah. of age now. You know, it's, it's inappropriate. So I don't know. But as yeah. far as actively pursuing it, there are people who are actively pursuing it that I'm in touch with and I'm kind of waiting to see how they do it because my big issue is I'm in Asia. So it's very hard for me to do that kind of stuff. I, I kind of yeah. just have to wait if somebody else does it. So, did, did you did you did you go to Asia if you don't mind me asking out of any fear, like just to get or was it more or less just to get away? I know you took a job out there, so uh, you know um, that was one of the things I thought yesterday, man. I mean, like God, this has got to be, um, like, you know, the the smear the smear campaigns. I saw the video too that your aunts and um, you know, and I felt I felt terrible watching that, man. To be honest. Um, and I don't know what your connection is. You know, I'm, I'm assuming there's probably not, um, there's probably not, you know, some deep connection there um, to, to family. Cause it seems like you, or from what it sounds like you haven't talked to them in a long time, but um, the, the purposeful um, tactics used to, to, to make somebody, because uh, you know you're not the only one this happened to 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 make them look bad and even what's his name um uh mike rinder that was his job was to do that shit right was to go out and actually 
if anyone spoke out was to make them look like a terrible person. And, and the video that your, you know, your aunts and your cousins did, I was, it was just like, it was crazy to see that. And you can totally see the reading shit too. It's not like hard to look at, you know? Yeah, it, it was, uh, well, uh, that's a, that's a bunch there, but I went to Asia for, um, I went to Asia the first time in 2009 and that was, um, that was because we're kind of skipping ahead past the homelessness, but basically no, after we'll, I had already no, we'll, we'll got, jump back, we'll jump back yeah. into that. I basically, I had made it a goal for myself to see Cambodia because of something someone told me while, while I was finally was in school. And so I, once I actually had enough um, money, I went to Cambodia. And so that was the first time I went to Asia, but that was just for a trip. And then I, I moved out to Asia in 2012. And that was a, both a combination of just life situation and kind of just, just losing steam on, on the whole uh, American experience and more specifically, not so much about politics actually, but more just specifically, there was nothing really, um, captivating me that I was doing in America. And so I was kind of just stewing in my past and it just like, I just felt like, like there was nothing waiting for me anywhere. And so I'd happened to go to Asia and I kind of just fell in love with the mystery and intrigue and the, just the total difference, different environment. And actually helps me stay off of, uh, you know, negative habits because yeah. um, there's always something exciting out there and fun to do, you know? Yeah. So that's how, that's, that's why I went to, to, to Asia. And then as far as my, um, my family's uh, video against me, um, you know, most of the people in that video, I had not even seen in 20 years when they made that video. So, I mean, they completely yeah. didn't know me. They didn't care that I was dead or alive until I showed up on a TV show. And by the way, this, as the TV show was airing, their video went up. Like yeah. it hadn't even finished airing once by the time their attack video against me was up. And, and, in, you know, I know a lot of your listeners probably wouldn't know, don't know exactly what we're talking about. I, I was basically, I was on this video uh, this show called uh, Leah Remini Scientology in, in the Aftermath. And the only thing I talked about in that, that episode was what happened to me at the ranch and my relationship with my mother and how that was, uh, how that went and how I kind of wished I had never been involved with Scientology. I never mentioned the rest of my family intentionally. I, yeah. didn't pick, I was trying to pick a fight with people. I'm just saying, yeah. here's what happened in my life. Okay. And then what the video that we're talking about now is as soon as that aired on TV, all the rest of my family made a video that with Scientology and literally at the bottom of the page, it's copyright church of Scientology. Mm-hmm. They made this video attacking me talking about how I, I overdose on drugs and I, I have been arrested for this and arrested for that. And then, you know, all this stuff that by the way, all of that happened after the ranch, but yeah. this, they, they put it in a blender and they just kind of say all these words at you. And it sounds like what they're saying. I mean, the first line of it is like the reason Nathan ended up at the ranch is because the only other option we had was jail. And yeah. my response to that is like jail. I was eight years old. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. It didn't you know, make much is, sense. This is what <laughs> makes sense in their mind. And then if you watch the rest of the video, they talk, Oh, he was hanging out with these kids and he was doing drugs. 
And the whole time I'm like, you know, I wasn't really yelling because I wasn't that upset because to be honest with you, I was just surprised at what they even looked like because I hadn't seen them in so long. Wow. But I almost wanted to yell at the screen and be like, that was after the ranch. You know, is yeah. this thing a time machine? I went to the ranch because of the things that happened after the ranch. It's just, this is the type of trickery that they try to do. Yeah. Um, well, so, so let, me, yeah. let, let, me, let me back us up a little bit. And I appreciate you breaking that down, um, you know, and, and giving a little background on it. Because I thought it was an important part. And I know I jumped ahead a little bit. So if we back up, you basically, you're, you're, you, you take off, you leave, and your mom tells you, like, look, I don't want any contact with you. I do have a guy who's connected to Scientology that you can connect with. Um, where does it kind of go from there? So then I, uh, obviously I wasn't going to connect with that guy because the reason that she wanted me to talk to him yeah. was to do more Scientology services so yeah. it's called the purification. I just wasn't going to do it. Come be an so, auditor. I need you to yeah. be an auditor. <laughs> yeah. That'll solve all my problems. So yeah. I, at that time I was living out of uh, my friend's car and, um, and he had a connection for LSD. So we were buying vials of LSD for $90 and it was about a hundred to 110 hits. And we, we were sometimes able to stay on his friend's um, couches. And she was a methamphetamine, let's say, aficionado. Uh, <laughs> she just loved it. And, and she sold high-grade weed to support her habit. So the arrangement was we would sell her weed for her, keep no profit, and then she would give us speed and loan us money to buy LSD and let us crash on her couch. So this is already, at 17, this is what my life had become. So we were buying these vials. And then the thing is that, you know, if you're not familiar with, with selling acid, it's not like you're in, a, you know, the cartel. You're not making any money because it costs you $90. You get 100 to 110 of them. You can charge one to five bucks each. And how often are you, do you see anybody selling LSD or anyone doing it? I mean, it's so rare. You can yeah. never sell it. It takes weeks, months even. And so long story short, we ended up sell just enough to get gas and get um, hamburgers from McDonald's when they had those 29 cent, 39 cent specials, we'd buy those, or we'd go to Jack in the Box, whatever. And then we would buy another vial and we would do it. Our, we would do the rest of it ourselves. So we just had this like little process going where we would support our own LSD habit. And then that started shifting over into methamphetamine mm. because basically if you mix methamphetamine and LSD, what happens is, overwhelmingly your experience becomes more about the powder, you know, powder almost always wins in these types of situations. So, um, plus you don't want to be having like a crazy methed out trip. That's yeah. a lot weirder and harder than it sounds. So we did that a few times and I kind of just, all right, enough with the LSD. I'm going to switch over to, 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 to meth. I mean, obviously you don't think that way, but that's basically what, what happened. And so it got into a little bit more stuff, you know, mushrooms and whatever else came along. But basically at that point, we're just doing a lot of meth. And then the winters came around. It was just freezing cold. So now we're talking 2000 um, winter. I was just about 18. And um, so we went down to, to Albuquerque where he was from and uh, ar arrived in Albuquerque. And, uh, you know, and basically he, his friends let us crash on their carpet was how that started. Mm. And so that was, you know, his friends were, you know, I never really have friends because I always moved around and I never went to school for a whole year and everything. So he was my only friend, but he, on the other hand, had tons of friends and all these guys were really heavily into drugs, drinking, partying. They all had kind of rough lives. Nobody had any money and everybody just wanted to get wasted all the time. 
And uh, so we, you know, the kind of the good news about that for me actually was that they don't, they didn't really do meth. So I, I kind of stopped doing meth and I got more into alcohol, you know, alcohol to the level of like, you know, people bringing over 30 packs and 40 ounces and kegs and they had all these friends and just growing into parties and, you know, we were a bunch of punk rockers. So we, we ended up kind of, uh, you know, going wild with that and just pushing wildness to the limit, you know, getting, you know, blacking out for the sake of blacking out. And the thing that I found, you know, comfort in with this, with this group was that they didn't care if that I was a Scientologist yeah. or anything, they had their own problems and they weren't interested in me. And, and, and so I, so I could, I could just be an escape artist with them and never have to think about my past. Mm. And, uh, anytime I did start to think about my past, I just get another bottle. And, uh, and, and that in some weird ways that kept me alive. Um, you know, probably in retrospect, probably I would have been better off with an actual support structure in place. And, yeah. and this is, by the way, this, this is something that I was really thinking about when I was listening to some of your other interviews on your other talks is that, you know, a few years after that, when I was still homeless, I started to become more, uh, you know, more knowledgeable about what this sort of recovery world is, right? I know, I understand about NA and AA and there's tons of people I meet and there's people lapsing and triggers and the, all that stuff. Like yeah. I, I, you get familiar with it on the streets. I mean, you just, it's everywhere. And the thing is that I, that I think my story really, as it relates to that type of structure, I'm kind of like, in my opinion, I'm kind of like the, the cautionary tale of what happens when you don't have that. I happen to have made it through the other side, but you know what? Along the way, no one else that I was with made it. And, yeah. and so I happen to have gone through, I happen to land it on an island, but everybody else sank. And, um, and it's interesting for me because I can see now the value in those support structures. So my support structure back then was a bunch of crazy punk rockers with motorcycles and weapons getting wasted all the time. And so we, we, we started this gang uh, called the Sluts in the City, which was named after this Gigi Allen song. And Gigi Allen is like sort of the most hardcore punk rocker ever, basically. And, uh, and his whole message was like, not caring about anything. Obviously he didn't say it that way, but you know, <laughs> it was really punk rock for sure. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we just identified with that because you know, to care about something means pain and to not care about it means no more pain. It's mm -hmm. gone. You can, you know, sniff, drink, party it away. And, um, so basically, you know, we, we had this, this group of maybe about, at the peak, maybe 50 people that were kind of part of this crew. And, you know, a lot of them had weapons and, you know, we all had whatever we had, alcohol and drugs and whatever. So um, eventually though, that kind of fell apart and I ended up hitting the road. So I just was hitchhiking by myself. And, um, you know, then basically what happened is I started getting back into drugs only this time instead of meth it was heroin. And so, um, I traveled around most of the Western part of the United States. Most of the time I was alone. Occasionally I had like what we call a road dog, which is like a, a friend traveling with you. So I had like my road dogs with me or just by myself a lot and, um, got into heroin and, you know, I go strung out, which is, you know, when you're 
you know, physically addicted to. I was strung out to, on heroin in Sacramento, mm-hmm. um, in a, an area of Arizona, uh, kind of inside Phoenix called Tempe, Tempe, mm-hmm. Arizona. I was strung out there for a while and up in Seattle and just traveling around just by myself with nothing and no one, just suffering through life. And I even still have some like old diary that I wrote in. I was writing letters to myself and poetry about heroin and just this crazy life. And um, um, that lasted for a while and a lot of crazy stuff happened on the road and everything like that. And then I ended up um, back in, in Albuquerque and one of my best friends of this uh, street kid that I met up in Portland, he, you know, he died right next to me on a couch, like leg to leg, keeled mm. over and died Damn. from heroin. And to make it worse, he was not really a heroin user. He was not really a junkie. He was just an alcoholic, but he would occasionally do some here and there. And his girlfriend, another street kid, uh, they had run off to the bathroom together and everyone just thought they were doing something else in there. And no, they didn't bother to tell anybody they were doing drugs. So he, they came out and he just died from the drugs and everyone just thought he passed out because he used to pass out all the time from alcohol. Yeah. So we're all just sitting there making fun of him as he's dead. Fuck bro. That's crazy. So once, once that happened, that was a big, uh, how old were you about this time? Oh boy. This is probably, this is probably about five and a half years after that, after it's so about 2005. Okay. Yeah, about 2005. So I was about uh, 23, 23 by now. So there's like five plus years of being homeless. I mean, I was, you know, people, a lot of people say homeless and there's all these, this whole sort of spectrum of homeless. So I kind of have to identify like what kind of homeless I was. So like in Sacramento, for example, because, you know, you mentioned Sacramento before we started recording. Yeah. Just happened to come up. I can right now draw on a piece of paper, having not been there in, uh, you know, 15 years I can I can draw on a piece of paper exactly where where the bridges are that I used to sleep under where in the park I used to go to get my dope right what the J Street Mall how to get there exactly you know I could tell you the entire area by heart and so you know where was I sleeping I was sleeping under the bridge you know and uh and so it was that level like in Portland same thing same thing with with Washington you know Seattle and, and Tacoma Lakewood uh, you know, Los Angeles, Albuquerque, all these different places. I can tell, I could from memory so, point places. That and, I so, and, and you were really up and down the West coast pretty much. I mean, you're traveling around and I mean, that's kind of a, I want to point out too, like, especially in the punk rock culture and in that, that whole environment. I don't know how much this has changed now versus in the early two thousands. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still somewhat similar, but there's kind of a whole culture there around that, right? Street kids um, traveling, just that whole scene. Uh, unfortunately, I'm assuming there's probably still a lot of drug use and, and alcohol use in it. Uh, but, you, but we see these kids. I mean, I was just out in Berkeley at a, a terror show on Saturday. Got my hoodie on, as a matter of fact. Damn good show. Uh, but you go out to Berkeley, and I mean, there, it's a whole different ballgame out, out there. And uh, just from, from like your normal small hometown feel of, of a, you know, a suburb or whatever. Um, the street culture out there is uh, it's, it's live and popping. That's for sure. And a lot of these kids, it's sad to think that a lot of them come from broken homes. A lot of them come from, um, you know, childhood abuse, all these things. And um, you want to help them, you know what I'm saying? And, and what, but, but you can't, 
to, to some extent because people are going to do what they want to do. And for you, um, I mean, what was it that finally you, you said your homie passed away right in front of you on the couch? Like, what was it that finally, that finally made something click for you beyond that um, to start to shift your mindset down the path of, of recovery and trying to live a, a better life? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, kind of three, three things there. So one is, yeah, I tend to do that. Huh? <laughs> let me get, yeah, let uh, me throw like four, four questions at you. Sorry, man. I get going. No, it's all good. I, I just, I always, I always like to answer each, each thing. Cause I think sure. each thing's interesting. So first of all, you're one of the only people I've actually, uh, done a podcast with or talked to that actually understands a bit about the punk rock kind of street kid culture. I mean, yeah. in my book and to a lot of other people I've talk to I had to explain a lot of this they didn't even realize it there's very much a homeless culture I've met many many kids who are even aspiring homeless kids like they have a home and they come hang out with us on the streets and kind of pretend like they're homeless and after a while they become homeless you know it's like they want to do it even I mean not all of them obviously but you know yeah. even that happens and you know Berkeley is uh I talk a little bit in my book about going you know when I went to Berkeley what I thought about that but they're they're kind of mostly clicked up and they're kind of like, they're, they're in a sense, at least at that time, we're in a sense much more sort of uh, fashionable about it, kind of doing it because that's the cool thing to do. Yeah. And I kind of felt like I was like on the streets because I didn't have anywhere to live. You know what I mean? I kind yeah. of felt like I don't have anywhere to live. If I did, I wouldn't be here. And then I would meet kids sometimes that were like, even if they had a home, they would want to be there because they thought it was cool. And so I didn't always get along with those people. Yeah, because it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a sense of like, kind of being a poser in a sense and the way i look at it like you you have maybe poser is a stupid word to use right there but um it's it's you know you have somewhere to go you have a family you have people that care about you like and when you come from a spot like yourself where you're really ostracized from not just your family but almost society in a sense too that's some straight punk rock shit right there that's the real you know that's the that's the real um culture of that and, it, and it's dark and it's sad and it's not a good thing to, to so to kind of see that i could see how you might have a little bit of animosity and be like man like like kid like go home like go love your family yeah, you know? yeah. i mean it, yeah it wasn't you know the, the the type of person that i've always been really is it's like i don't hate people but yeah but you know i'm not gonna sure. like i just go somewhere else you know you're not yeah. my crowd but yeah. you know so th those are the, the 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 two points there and then the the the, you're right. The third thing is that, yeah, Spit, his name was Spit, by the way, my friend that died. Mm. He, when he died, it wasn't enough, actually. Um, I kind of pushed, you know, I pushed heroin away a bit, and, um, and, but I hadn't quit. You know, I just was kind of not doing as much. And, um, and this girl, basically, that I knew, she knew that I did heroin, and she had convinced me that she wanted to do a documentary for some reason she wanted to film me shooting up and so even though i hadn't been doing it much i was like all right i'll do i'll do something mm. you know see if i can impress her or whatever so i she filmed me and i and i and i spiked up on on camera and i was you know going through how to do it and everything and i uh i hit myself with it and then just uh i remember i was counting down for the camera you know i'm like a ham it was like five four and then boom i just my eyes open and there's some lady who looks really annoyed huh. uh, hanging over me, kind of like, you know, just being very sort of frustrated looking and kind of grabbing my arm and everything. And as I'm 
sort of looking around, I'm realizing that I'm handcuffed to a stretcher and there's sheriffs all over. This is in the suburb of Albuquerque called Rio Rancho. There's sheriffs everywhere and they're yelling out stuff like, where's the rest of the drugs? You know, where's the rest of it? And uh, so long story short, I came to find out after I was in jail for a little while for that, I got out and, and she told me what happened is I just fell over and just OD'd right there and turned blue and purple and white and she was breathing for me. And she wasn't a junkie, so this is her first time even really being around it. So she just panicked, called 911, said someone's overdosing, which if you do that to the to 911, they just send the police over as well. You know, <laughs> sort of what you, if you're a junkie, then you would know that what you're supposed to do is call them and say somebody's having trouble breathing. Yeah. They don't show up with the batons and the pepper spray, but, you know, I don't blame her for that or anything. I'm just saying. So they, they all show up. Yeah. Yeah, she had no idea. So. And she saved my life. She's, she, she was breathing for me for what she de- described as for 10 minutes while Damn. I was coming. Yeah. Wow. And so I, I, and then I was in jail for that one. Uh, and then the thing is, after I got out of jail, which was only a few weeks, after I got out of there, within a week, I OD'd again on heroin. Right. So I was, uh, I was, on, the, I was on the downward, I mean, I was towards the end there. And then the night that I OD'd again, I was with junkies that time and they had this thing called Narcan, which is they inject you and it basically just takes you right out of heroin only for opiates. And they had that and they, they used it on me. And the same night I was popping pills and I was out drinking at a punk show. I'm like, I just did not care. I didn't care anymore. I was just ready to die. And you know, I, I had tried to commit suicide um, when I was 15 at the ranch, when I was 11, in, in Florida and I had, um, you know, really intensely considered suicide even when I was nine and all that's in the, in the book as well. But the point is life was rough for me. And, you know, at least I felt it was rough for me at those times. But, but now when I was in my, um, you know, early to mid twenties, I was just over life. I just didn't care anymore. I didn't care. Yeah. I mean, I was, I did, I injected beer thinking at the time, by the way, that the bubbles would probably kill me. I don't even know if that's true. But at the time, I thought if you inject a bubble, it could go into your heart and you could die. Yeah. And I didn't have any dope. And I was trying to kick dope. And I ended up in Salt Lake City. And I just injected beer because I was so fiending, which some people out there know what I mean. And then I injected whiskey. And like, I didn't, I just didn't care if I died anymore. And did it fuck you up? Did it, did it like, what does that beer do? Didn't do anything. The beer doesn't yeah. do anything, but if you inject whiskey, yeah, you get drunk from it. Believe <laughs> dude, it or not, that is, yeah. that's the first time I've ever heard that, bro. That is insane. Yeah. Damn, dude. I mean, that's and bro, that's that's a good example of the insanity of addiction, right there. Like you didn't, you couldn't get what you needed, so fuck it. I'll do. Let me try this. You know what I mean? Let me see if this will work. It it may kill me, but I, you know, hey, it, it's a try. Yeah. And I want I want to point out one more thing too, man. I think this is really important. Um, you've kind of. <clears throat> excuse me, you kind of framed up, um, you know, the, the culture of like, I don't, I don't care. Like, I, I really don't care if I live or die. That punk rock attitude of like, like kind of like fuck the world type of thing. I know I've, I've carried that uh, and, and I don't really carry it anymore, but I carried it for a long time. Like, I just did not care. And what that did is, and you alluded to it earlier, it relieved all of that stress and pressure and reality and it made everything go away. I, I completely had, I just did not care. And it felt so good to not care. And I want to say that, you know, for those out there listening, 
there's a piece of that that you can find in recovery. And I've, I've been able to tap into it. And it's, it's a constant daily process, but that's why it's called recovery. And it's giving up control. It's giving up. It's surrendering. And it's, it's the matter of, for me, having faith and understanding that I don't have to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders anymore. And I used to do that. Or I used to, to get to, to relieve that by having that attitude. I don't give a fuck. Like, I don't really care what happens to me, what happens to them. Now it's different. I cannot carry that weight because I know that I don't have to, that I'm not able as a man to carry that weight across, you know, every day of the daily grind. Some days are better than others, no doubt. Like recovery isn't all, you know, perfect and, 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 um, rainbows and puppy dogs is some, I've heard some people say, which is kind of a weird, stupid analogy, but, um, you know what I'm getting at? Uh, so there's hope out there is what I'm getting at, man. And, um, you know, you can have that same kind of attitude and still be punk rock and still be like a good person and, um, and enjoy life. And so I, I want you, um, so I want to finish up where you're going, but I really want you, Nathan, if you don't mind, to get into what life is like today too and how you've been able to go from this really terrible upbringing and, you know, just some of the worst shit, man. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And like, thank you for, for sharing like your heart today and stuff too, man. I think it's, it's pretty amazing. The man that you've, you've, um, you know, been able to turn your life into. Um, but, uh, you know, where does that go from there? And then what is, what is your life like today, man? Right. So that's a, that's a very interesting point you made there. So that actually dovetails pretty nicely into how I got out. I know that your last question was, how did I get out? And I actually haven't answered that yet. So mm. I'm right there now. So I had died in my mind. I, I had died. My, my friend had actually died. I was, I was out of touch with reality. I was at the rock bottom. And I decided to take a break from heroin. Hmm. So I just couldn't think about it. And I just took like a day or two, which is already hard. And then when I started to have an urge again, I just left the city. I literally ran from my problem. I said, I'm going to go to another city where I don't know where to get dope. Because I was already a traveler anyway. So I just yeah. went to another city, don't know where to get it. Why was I avoiding it? Where did the strength come from? It wasn't even strength of like, I want to quit doing heroin. It was just like, I don't want to do it right now. And, um, and so that was the initial thing was like, I just need to think about this. I need to think about what, like, I was just jarred. I was like, what is going on in my life? Mm -hmm. Then I started to take stock. And, and, and by this time, you have to realize, you know, we, we really condensed seven, seven years. So by this time, I was really starting to think to myself like, okay, I started on this path. I didn't care about anything and I was ready to die again and again and again. And I'm not dead. It's mm. like, I can't die or I won't die. Something won't kill me. I, or, you know, whatever it is, what, what I'm doing now, it's not working. This, this isn't working for me and other people are dying and losing and suffering around me and I'm suffering and losing too. So I, I had by then temporarily, not been doing drugs for let's say i don't know four or five days a week right in that area when i started having these thoughts i went to a party and everyone was drinking and hanging out and i was telling somebody look i was like you know now that i'm not doing all this stuff i'm just drinking everything just seems really boring <laughs> like i feel like i've been to this party already 
You know, I already know all the drama. I know, I know that lady that I can hear her yelling right now, that girl over there, I never even met her before. I can kind of guess what this night's going to end up like with her. She's mm-hmm. going to get mad at somebody because they said whatever. You know, like I just started predicting everything around me. It's just getting bored. And the guy was like getting annoyed with me telling him all these like, what do you, you know, what do you want? And I was like, I don't know, man. I just feel like I just want to do something. Mm-hmm. Like I want to do something. I don't know what. And the guy said, well, why don't you do computers? I said, all right. <laughs> just the most random thing for someone to say at a party. So funny, it's a total dumb thing that, you know, you hear a thousand yeah. times, where you go, why don't you this, why don't you that, why don't you do computers? And I was like, oh, all right, sure. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so at that time, I was living under a tunnel, uh, in a tunnel under the streets in, um, in Albuquerque. I came back to Albuquerque. I was living in the tunnel. And I had nothing. And I hooked up to this girl and she was what we used to call house punk. So she was like a punk rocker, but she had a home. And um, so sometimes I would stay on her bed and everything. And just staying with her, she wasn't really like a crazy punk like we were, you know. She wasn't really into like wild and crazy or anything. So that actually was nice for me. So it was just kind of, she just was like, oh, let's watch a movie. Oh, let's eat some dinner. And so I kind of got a little taste of like normal life again. Hmm. And, um, and then I started to feel a little bit kind of guilty or kind of like, oh, I, I should help her. You know, she's like, just, I'm always, she's always buying me food and buying, renting movies and everything. So I started to think like, how do I get money? Hmm. You know, I had no driver's license, no ID, no social security card. No, I didn't even know my social security number, no passport, no family, you know, nobody could, to, could vouch for me, no work history. No, you know, I had two years, two full years of, of education and, you know, if you're being very charitable, you could say I had an eighth grade education. Hmm. And how do I get money? I, I, I live in a sewer and I'm smelly. I have one, I have one set of clothes yeah. and, uh, and I'm an addict and I smell. So um, that began a kind of a long and uh, tough period of time where not tough mentally, but sort of just tough practically. Like how do I get all this stuff? And basically I ended up, um, going to this drop-in center, which is kind of like where you go if you're on the streets, the kind of, you know, donation-led place. Maybe they'll give you some food if they have some, whatever. And this lady was generous enough to help me get my birth certificate. Mm. And then I went to the Social Security office. And, you know, after a lot of back and forth, I was eventually able to convince them to get me one um, by staying at a shelter and getting the shelter, the guy at the shelter to like write a note that I said that I was this person. And then Wow. Sort of this complicated thing, but I slowly started piecing together the, just the basic things so that I even could apply for any kind of job in the first place. And then I started doing day labor, right? So I wake up like three, four in the morning, whatever, and go out and just sit out there and hope that somebody needs help moving some wood or whatever. Yeah. And then I went, went from that, I went to uh, temp agencies. So I applied at a couple of temp agencies and one of them didn't take me, but then I think Excel staffing didn't take me, but then this other one called the Deco did take me. And then I started doing these temp jobs, which were, you know, um, tough. And then I, like, I just basically kept pushing and pushing. Then I knew somebody who knew somebody at a Wendy's. Yeah. So I got hired at a Wendy's and, and I was, had been buying clothes with the, the money that I got the other place and I was showering at her place. And, and, you know, at this time period in my life, you know, I was still very much uh, screwed up in the head. I mean, the drugs have really done a number on me. 
and I was pretty damaged, but I could at least, you know, kind of do okay at like a Wendy's type of job. Yeah. And uh, so this is the beginning of the curve up where I'm starting to actually turn around. And, um, uh, and so basically what happened then is I decided I needed to, I wanted to go to school because like I knew that if I worked at Wendy's and I work at some other place, some other place, I'm just kind of hopping around these random industries. Yeah. But I had this goal. I want to do computers, whatever that means. And uh, so I needed to get my uh, FAFSA done, which is kind of the, the like federal application for, for like student loans and grants and whatever. But I still wasn't 24 years old. And you have to be 24 to not need your parents' tax information. So I had to call my mother. Okay, so I called her after I hadn't talked to her in seven years. And, uh, and I, I looked up her number by then, like the internet was around and everything. So I, I looked her up on the, inter- I looked her up on the internet somehow and I got in touch with her and she just flat out rejected me. It was like, no way I'm not helping you. You know, she only took the call cause it was like an unknown number. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I ended up having to just wait until I was 24 so that I could apply for a Pell grant and student loans. And the one good thing about being homeless this entire time maybe the only good thing at that time was I didn't care about student loans. I was like, if, if I don't succeed, I am never going to pay them back. What are they going to do? <laughs> I live in a tunnel. Yeah. You know what I, mean? like, All right, I don't care about that. So they're like, Oh, it's this percent payback, you know, whatever. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Great. Oh, sounds yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, they gave me just enough with the Pell grant and the student loans, just enough to get into a vocational college, like a community college. And by then I had worked, I started working at a, like a tech support company. It was all scripted, you know, don't get excited. It was just literally like a checklist. You're like the first people, Oh, uh, have you tried plugging your computer in that kind of guy? And, um, um, but that was paying me tons of money. It was like nine bucks an hour. I was like, I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. So I I even bought like a used motorcycle from this guy that I knew. And I, you know, slowly starting to piece things together. And I started going to school finally at 24 and two months into it, I got into a motorcycle accident, which is the other person's fault, shattered my wrist and tons of pieces, damaged my shoulder, all this stuff. Mm. And so as far as from like a, um, addiction point of view, by this time I, I was, I was drinking a lot, um, compared to how I am now, but not compared to how I used to be. So in other words, I would drink maybe, I don't know, a bit each day, you know, but not really get drunk, maybe drunk once or twice a week. And which was nothing for yeah. me at that time. That was basically sober at that, at that point. So, um, uh, and I wasn't doing much drugs. But the thing is, I had this major accident, which took almost six months to recover use of my arm and everything. And they gave me, you know, morphine. And mm-hmm. the, the thing is, morphine doesn't do anything to you if you've been doing heroin for years. It doesn't yeah. do anything. And they don't believe you when you say that because they think you just want more drugs. So you just basically suffer. So I spent a lot of time screaming into the crevice of my couch, you know? Um, and so I didn't know what to do. I, and I knew I was in trouble because now I wasn't going to be able to go to school and I was still in Albuquerque and I knew myself enough to know I might slip back into old habits. So I ran again. I said, all right, I'm going back up to Seattle because I, that Seattle was fun. You know, at least when I was on the streets, let's go up there. Let's try to make a life up there. I was telling my girlfriend. And so we went up there she was still paying for everything. Um, I, I had a little bit of money, but you know, the, the, the bulk of everything was still her. 
And so we went up to Seattle and I got into a, a place called Seattle Vocational Institute under, under the same type of situation. It was just the only one I could afford. Yeah. All the other ones had these non-resident fees where it was like triple price, except for this one. And I wanted to quote unquote do computers. So I just took <laughs> the only computer class that they had, which was called a network technician program. I was like, I don't know what that is. Sounds yeah. like nerd stuff. Good. Great. Let's do it. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. So oddly that class happens to be because there was no non-residence fee. There was a ton of people there who just wanted visas because it was the cheapest one for non-residents. So there's a bunch of immigrants and um, uh, like there was a high school kid there. there was a grandma. There was a couple from Iran or, and there was like a dude from, from, uh, from uh, Cambodia and another guy from Ethiopia. It was just sort of this mishmash of people, which was, you know, fine. But the thing is most of them didn't really want to learn about computers. And that class had clearly been that way for a long time. So the curriculum was extremely basic. It was like, nice. here's what DOS is. Here's what YouTube is. Here's what a CD-ROM is. And my problem was I had just gone through basically the hardest thing in the world to actually be able to go to school. I had spent yeah. like two years of a ramp up time from going from living under a tunnel to finally being able to show up in a school. And I was not going to accept learning what websites are and how CD-ROM works. Hmm. So I talked to my, there was three teachers and I talked to them and I said, look, I'll do your curriculum but I'm not going to get through this nine month program and just know some basics about computer hardware. That's not happening. And they said, all right, look, um, you get through your curriculum. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you two servers. We're going to give you two workstations. We're going to buy you any books that you want. We want you to build a bind DNS server in Linux. We don't exactly know what that is, but we want you to figure it out and build it for us. We want you to build this IP cop uh, firewall in Linux because we're going to start embedding them in these little pieces of hardware, try to sell them. We, again, we don't really know what that is. We want you to figure it out. Hmm. And so I said, okay, Linux, I've heard of that. It's, it's a, like an operating system or something. So I said, uh, okay, well, what's like the command line version of that? Of course, they're all command line version, but at that time I didn't know. So I said, like, what's like the hard version of that? Because I want to do it for real. And so they told, they told me the name of this OS called Gen 2. And it took me about a week to install it the first time. This is the level of difficulty that it takes. I was all throughout the handbook, chat rooms. I had books and it took me about a week just to get it installed full time. And I just, over the next nine months, I just kept showing up. You know, I still had my mohawk, still had, you know, <laughs> slut in the city, tattooed on my fingers, you know. I was still Fucking spray man. painting my hair. You know, people thought I was nuts. Yeah. And this is like an urban, you know, community college. Like my best friend there was this like black, grandmother chick who just thought like, hey, I'm over to my house and like Great. listen to my rap CDs and stuff. And just thought like the weirdest punk rock dude, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And and so I just spent the next month like the nine months just crash coursing myself. I was like, I'm gonna teach myself then. I don't care. And I just yeah just dove into it like never, you know, like never before. And I put all the energy, I kind of transformed a lot of the negativity that I had into this energy, this, this like coal burning in the, in the, in the engine to keep me focused. And I showed up every day and I took a bicycle. I took a bus. I walked, I didn't care whatever it took. I went, I got there and I showed up and I did it day after day after day, nine months straight. And by the time I left that place, they were offering me a job to work there mm. for 15 bucks an hour. I turned them down because I thought I could do better. I said, no, I think I can do better than that. And, and I, 
I mean, I was nice about it, obviously, but yeah. And then I, I went and applied on Craigslist and everything and I found a place and they basically said, uh, this was in Tukwila, Washington. And they said, well, you're not really qualified, but because you've done this and because you've done that, and because you've done this in only nine months and you taught yourself, we know that you can teach yourself what we're doing too. So we'll hire you. And then uh, they eventually laid me off and I moved down to LA and I got another job that almost mirrored that almost exactly. By then I had covered my, uh, my slut in the city tattoos on my knuckles. I covered them up with like this uh, pattern, which mm. is actually based on CPU schematics. So I looked at a Look. CPU, blew up the, the ink dye from it and said like that little area over here, that little area over there, put that on this knuckle, that knuckle, <laughs> so I covered up with something. And it was just part of this like uh, gang cover up tattoo for free type of program or whatever. So I got those done for free. And then, um, so I'm sitting in there and I'm telling this, this guy in LA uh, in this job interview about my tattoos. Cause that's the first thing people notice of course is like, Oh, who's this criminal looking dude. Yeah. And I told him, well, yeah, this is the, uh, you know, this is the math coprocessor from the first CPU that I enjoyed as a kid. And I got Linux tattooed on my wrist over here. And so they look at that and then they go, okay, and you've done this and this and this and that amount of time. So the response was almost exactly the same. He said, well, you're not qualified for this position, but here's how much we're going to offer you, which was more than I even asked for. He hmm. said, cause I know you can learn it. You're smart. Let's do this. So I, wow. I stayed at that place for like two and a half years. And, um, and you know, obviously by then I wasn't homeless more, anymore, of course. And I was, I was started out as like a systems administrator and then it was a network administrator. And then by the end of that two and a half years or so, almost three years, I was what you call a systems architect. So I was, you know, taking charge of and, and, or participating in, in these large build outs for companies like Verizon, Gatorade, wow. um, you know, Oscars and, and Grammys, which are not the real company names, but that's what you guys would know them as. And, um, and like skateboard.com, snowboard.com, and just on and on, all these big like companies, um, they're web architectures. And so by the end of that, I was like a bona fide guy doing computers. You know, I was doing it. And um, so then I, that was somewhere around, uh, I'm going to say 2010 ish. You, you ever, you ever uh, think about finding that guy and then just saying, hey, hey, hey John, I do computers. <laughs> <laughs> the dude that asked you that's so epic right there you do computers bro like all right i mean when 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 people ask you what you do you gotta you gotta say that right i, I do computers i mean i do yeah yeah <laughs> it's so great nothing everything, everything. <laughs> i love it man it's so good yeah it's it, it's definitely been one of the most powerful random comments in my life yeah and um so then basically i um i got another job and it again from Craigslist, just happened to be at, a, at a, a visual effects company. So it's a company that does like CGI for films, mm -hmm. um, major motion pictures. And that was in Venice, California, part of LA. And, um, and then that company moved to Santa Monica. And by this period of time, I was already like, you know, I was pinnacle of, of a certain trajectory of, of technical careers. In other words, yeah. there was only, the only way I could really get higher up would be to become management. And um, so I was very good at what I was doing, but I had to learn their industry, their particular um, problems. So worked there for a little while and impressed some, some of the sort of right people and um, a producer there and a uh, visual effects supervisor that worked on Avatar. They 
teamed up and did a startup company in Utah of all places. Um, I didn't realize at the time for some reason, but they were Mormons and they wanted to move out back out to Utah and do mm. the startup company. And they told me, we want you, we want you to leave that company and come to our startup. What would it take? And I told them, ah, don't worry about it. Because at that time I had like, you know, three monitors. And when I lift my eyes above the horizon of my three monitors, I'm looking at the beach. Like mm. it's right in front of my face, the water That's of Santa good. Monica, right by the promenade. I was like, there's no way I'm leaving this place. Yeah. And then I thought, you know, the worst they can say is no. So I just wrote them an email. I said, well, I'll take this much money. I want a month <laughs> off. I don't want to work for anybody. Work entirely from home. I want equity, da, 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 whatever. I just was like, all right, this is what it would take. And their answer was, okay, we'll write it up. And so I was like, okay. Damn. So I moved out to Utah and, um, Got a you couple know, that, of wives, right? <laughs> just, just the one. Yeah. Uh, no, but it was nice. It was a, the first time I actually lived, you know, like had a house. I mean, I didn't yeah. buy it. Like, you know, I was in a home. Like, wow, it's not just an apartment. Wow. It's pretty nice. And actually Utah is a really nice place. Um, it, it's pretty, I mean, it's got its own problems, but it's, it's actually a lot nicer yeah. than I thought it was. And then um, that company basically did a lot of startup mistakes where they kind of scramble and they get, you know, they run around with like chickens with no heads on and they're kind of doing a lot of the wrong stuff. And about after about a year, it uh, started to implode and they said, Hey, um, maybe we're going to do this merger with this company out in China of all things, somewhat totally randomly yeah. to me. Like, okay, that sounds weird. And they said, well, you're the director of technology. We want to send you out there so you can check and see if this technologically is even feasible. And so this is about the end of 2011. So then 2012 rolls around January ish. They send me out to China, deep into China, like a town yeah. of 110,000 people in the middle of the country wow. to check this out. And um, basically then while I was out there, the company basically dissolved. And so I just said, ah, all right, I'm just going to stay out here, start doing some uh, remote work from the web hosting company that I was working for before. So then I was working at night from, you know, because it's American time would be nighttime where I was. Uh, so I was working at night and traveling the day. And I spent a couple of years just traveling, wandering the earth like Cain, just all throughout Asia, Southeast Asia, you know, cities within China, just all over the place. And then um, after a while that kind of got, you know, there's a lot of drinking going on there because I was just by myself and still kind of escaping, you know, breakups and just my life, you know, yeah. even though I had, I had done computers and I was successful in that way, that doesn't solve all your problems. You know, yeah. just cause I had money and had a home didn't mean I was magically happy every second of the day. And, um, and so then I, I decided, you know, I need some stability. I just need to like, you know, have be in one place where people know who I am and I'm responsible for something. Hmm. So in 2014, I decided either I was going to learn Mandarin Chinese or I'm going to go get a job in China so I can see what it's like to work with Chinese people. And I applied for, um, I applied to be, you know, uh, uh, like an IT manager at the largest Asian based uh, visual effects company called BaseFX. And that's in China. And I also looked for a school and they immediately were like, yes, we want you. So I, I was living in Thailand at the time. So I went up to uh, Beijing and met with them. This is now, uh, mid to late 2014. And they said, yes, we want you after a couple of months. Uh, you know, I got all the visas, everything 
worked out and I started and I uh, was promoted after the sort of probationary period to the IT manager. Mm -hmm. And then in about a year I was promoted to uh, the IT director and then I was promoted to the CTO. So um, I spent a couple years uh, managing uh, about almost a hundred staff in six uh, cities in three countries and uh, two languages. So, um, you speak, you know, Mandarin, my, do you speak Chinese? I, I speak enough to, especially technical, uh, yeah. Mandarin, but, and, you know, I speak enough to understand about 80% of common language. So, yeah. But, so you can hold like, a, yeah, you, you can pretty much hold a conversation, know, get your work done, that kind of stuff with some. Yeah. Basic stuff. The, the, the weird crazy. thing though, is because I had an assistant the whole time. So actually I can understand Chinese way better than I could speak mm -hmm. it. Because, you know, when you're, the server's down or whatever, you don't have time to practice your Chinese. So you say it in English. <laughs> yeah. And then she'll translate it, and now you've learned how to say it. So I can understand about 80% of what any random wow. Chinese person is talking about, but I can only say about maybe 15%, very low speaking skills. So, um, so, so I was, I was uh, you know, we had off, uh, offices in um, Malaysia, two three, three in China, um, one in, uh, Los Angeles, sorry, one, two, three, four in China, one in Los Angeles and one in Malaysia. And so, um, that's kind of the top of, you know, my game for, uh, for tech. I kind of was like, all right, I don't really want to go bigger than this. This is kind of, it all started from somebody saying, why don't you do computers? And now I'm frigging, you know, doing hundreds well, of job interviews and hiring people all across, you know, I'm not even I, at that point, I wasn't even doing computers anymore. It's just management. Yeah. Well, I want, I wanted to point out too, bro. Cause I, I, I love, I love the whole sequence of that story. Um, like the power of thought, the power of a, a seed that's planted into someone's, someone's mind, the power of an idea where you can take something and go step by step and start from the very, very, very bottom of living under a bridge or in, in a sewer pipe and taking it all the way up to, you know, directing multiple companies, people, um, learning, teaching yourself. And the thing I want to point out about that, you know, cause I get questions and have conversations a, a lot about, you know, well, how do I do this? How do I stay sober? How do I, you know, do, and a lot of people think, including myself at one point that there was just like this, this magic, this magic fucking wand that was going to come down and fix everything. You know, yeah. there's a lot of visions about that, about, well, and a lot of yep. excuses in that victim mentality. But I want to point out, this is one of my favorite lines and I, I, I live by it is just show up. And you, you actually said it earlier. You said, I just showed up and you just got to fucking show up, just show up and do the next right thing. And you got to put the work in and like you put the work in, you started and you went step by step. You fucking worked at Wendy's for however many months. I'm sure that wasn't your favorite thing to do. It's probably not no. your, yeah, I mean, you know, but you did it and you went step by step by step by step and you, you were patient and you did the next thing that God or the universe or whatever you want to call it put in front of you and you did it. And I just think that's so, so, so rad, bro. So I just wanted to kind of point that out for people listening, like just show up and put the work in and don't trip on expectations. The shit will yeah. come. You know, it'll, it'll come to you and you'll figure it out as you go on, man. So, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You touched on something there that is, that hits really close to home, which is that 
one of the big sort of realizations that I had when I was thinking about, you know, back when I was at the tail end of my homelessness, when I was realizing like, I'm not dead, you know, I'm for some reason I'm still here. Yeah. The other thing that was really hitting me at that time is exactly what you just said, which, which is like, look, I'm not going to walk down the street and someone's going to see me and say, I, we want you to be the singer in our next band. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hey, yep. you're the, you're really super cool. We want you to be in the movie. We want, you know, it's just not going to happen. It isn't yeah. going to happen. No one is going to come and scoop me up and fix my life and tell me that they, you know, here you go. Now you're rich and we'll take care of you. And the world is sorry. Yep. And it sounds really stupid to talk about it, but that's just in a weird way. That's almost what I thought was going to happen. It just yep. doesn't happen, you know? Yep. And, and you're right. You know, I, uh, I worked at Wendy's for months and um, you know, each thing is a baby step and you're at, everything you just said is totally almost perfect. It's like when I was at Wendy's, I had 11 managers. All of them were women. There's night shift managers and general managers, regional, all these different things. And of those, a few of them were, were lesbians and a few of those were like hated men. Okay. A couple of them. Mm-hmm. And I was a man and for better, or for worse. And I was like a little tattooed, you know, hungover guy. And those, uh, those particular uh, managers were very sure to yell at me a lot and be very mean to me while flirting with being nice with, to all the other, the managers and everything. And I suffered through that and right. I made $6 and 25 cents an hour. And I did the, the night shift so I could get that extra 25 cents an hour. Cause I was thinking that's mm. going to add up. And you know what? When they're throwing away salads at night, I would try to be super nice to the manager. So they would let me eat some of them. Let me take some of them home. And mm. at that time I was staying with my friend. He would let me sleep on the couch of this lady's house who I barely knew, but she was a vegan. And so I couldn't even bring meat home. So I had to, you know, bring mm. just this, the salads home. And sometimes it would, you know, Life wasn't fun. I didn't have yeah. anything going on. And then, you know, I, I worked at, at the temp agency. I worked at a plastic mold injection factory where I literally just stood there like a freaking robot. Oh. The plastic comes down in these tubes. I was, you know, I open this thing up. I pull this thing out, do some this, that, the other thing. And then I just do it again for eight hours straight. And you know what? I never thought that the next thing was going to magically solve all my problems. You're, you're absolutely right. I just keep doing it. Keep my eye out for the next thing. Don't drop out. Don't just go home and say, screw it. No, I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to keep my eyes you know, open. And there's always another opportunity just waiting for you. Yep, and absolutely. when I was at Wendy's, the thing that really got me going was I talked to the lady who was working the cash register and I said, how long have you been here? Just chit-chatting because you're so bored yeah. you know, it's when nobody's there. And she said she'd been working there for seven years. And when she told me that, I was like, all right, I'm getting out of here. This is it. I need to find <laughs> another job. I, I, I do computers, bitch. <laughs> I'm fucking flipping burgers forever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's exactly. funny, I've got to do computers. But yeah. you're absolutely right. It's, it's just showing up and just keep doing it and just keep your eyes open because something will come. And you know what? It didn't come the first week I was at Wendy's. It didn't come when I wanted it to, right? Mm-hmm. You, I mean, people talk to me now and they say, oh, it's – they say stuff to me like, oh, you're so lucky. I'm like, I'm not lucky. I'm 36 years old and I I'm still don't feel normal. Most of my life was spent on Scientology and homelessness and drugs. So I don't yeah. feel lucky. I feel like a, somebody that suffered a lot and I'm not dead. And most of the people that I knew from back then are dead. Yeah. So I don't really feel lucky. But the point is that you can get through it. And this is kind of where... Um, this is kind of where like almost where the, the, the discussion began because... 
I'm kind of a cautionary tale because the thing is, I did it, if you'll notice, with no support structure. I didn't go to NA meetings. I didn't go to AA yeah. meetings. I didn't have a group or family. I did it myself, but almost no one else that I was with made it. They're all yeah. dead yeah. or they're still there somewhere in, in the gutter. And so the point is that, yeah, you can, you can not listen to these kinds of podcasts. You can not go to meetings. You cannot, you know, get help from your family and from your community. And yes, technically you could make it, you could be another me, you know, but believe me, the chances are very low. And if I personally, if I were to do it over again, I would definitely do it with the community because mm, yeah. it was torturous. It was horrible. Yeah, that's um, that's good, man. That's uh, that's the title um, or the the topic for our next um, our, our live podcast we're doing in a couple of weeks is stepping stepping into community because it is so it's so important to have those people around you that are building you up and and giving you motivation um, and support to do something else. And it's funny, man. I think back to, to the girl, I didn't catch her name. I don't even know if you said it, but the girl who was, was a punk rocker, but kind of had a, a spot and kind of like brought you in and, and, and started you on that path of like some sort of nor like normalcy in some sense. And when I think about that, she was kind of the start of your community in a sense, you know what I mean? Like gave you that little tiny bit of, um, of something normal to kind of to kind of spring you up and get you off on that path and um, man what an important thing what an important thing it is so if we kind of if we kind of tie this thing up man and, and and wrap this up because I gotta I gotta take a leak so bad right now bro I'm I'm a uh, um, what is uh, I think I drank too much too much coffee this morning man I had a couple cups that you know I, I got up at four about four fifteen uh, you know so we could do this and and. Uh, you know, I was, I was super, super excited to do it, but the time difference, like you said, you know, working with, uh, with China and, and the States is, is a little bit, a little bit tough, yeah. but, um, if you kind of wrap this up, like, you know, obviously you, you've, you've learned a lot through this whole process and you're continuing to do so, um, what, what does it look like for you today in recovery and just trying to stay sober and live a positive lifestyle? Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, and then yeah. next to that, what advice can you give anybody else out there listening, man, who's, who's maybe going through it and, and just doesn't know, know where to turn. Right. So, so the story that I just went through leads us up to exactly one month ago. That's when I decided mm -hmm. to resign from that company. Uh, and the reason I wanted to resign is because I was kind of done with doing computers for now. I mean, obviously I still toil around and mess with it, but Professionally, I kind of want to take a break from that and I want to focus more on getting my story out and talking to people and, you know, writing my book and just taking, you know, doing what I want to do for a little bit. And yeah. um, so as far as, it, you know, with drugs and alcohol for myself, um, it is night and day from, from those days. I don't need to escape, you know, I don't need to escape because I built the life around me through hard work that I appreciate. And I remember very clearly because it lasted for a long time. I remember all that stuff. I remember it all very clearly. I, I remember hearing other people say, oh, if you're sober, everything's much better and it's all more, you know. And I remember thinking like, yeah, sure, sure. Because I thought I had tried being sober because I had stopped drinking and stopped doing drugs for a few days. And I said, well, this sucks. And I went right back to it. And I didn't really get what they meant. And now I really get it, which is that I've been sober for, sober off of drugs for such a solid 
amount of time, it has become my new core. That's who I am as a sober person. So if somebody comes around me with, with dope or with meth or whatever, I don't have any urge to do it. It's not interesting to me. I wouldn't even do it if they, you know, someone paid me to, it's just, I just, yeah. I don't need it anymore. It's gone. It's, yeah. it's just gone from my life. And then, um, as far as alcohol goes, I, you know, I would say I, I probably drink once, once a month or something, once every couple months. I don't really like getting drunk. I don't, I don't even enjoy drinking. It's usually just because, you know, I feel like I have to because a bunch of other people are around or whatever. <laughs> but I yeah. kind of do that. For, I, I do, you know, I'm at the point now where I would say I'm solidly past the line. So I'm kind of like, all right, well, you know, I can have a drink. I don't care because I know for 110% sure that I am controlling myself. Like I know that I'm not going to fall back into any old habits or anything. And it takes a long while to get there. And um, I would say this life is way better now than it was back then way yeah. better. I mean, I've got a great girlfriend. I live in a great apartment. I'm, you know, I'm traveling the world and, um, you know, I got two wonderful cats. I have no urges for drugs. I don't even have any alcohol in the house at all. Mm. You know, no need for it. And I don't miss it. That's yeah. the key point. It's not like I'm trying to do that. I don't even care. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, how's your life been without all the stuffed elephants? It's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't need stuffed elephants. Yeah. I guess other people like them. It's not yeah. my thing. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I'm feeling now. It's just totally not a part of my life. And um, other than talking about it with people who, you know, and remembering how it was once part of my life. Yeah. And, and it is, there is still obviously residual mental effects. There's my veins, which will never return. There's, um, you know, ultra sensitivity to sugar there's mm. you know i still have ptsd and i still have insomnia and i still have all these problems but you know what i just buck up and i just say you know i'm going to get through it and i don't need medication for that you know i don't need yeah. self-medication for that if it's something serious i'll talk to the doctor but i just don't need the chemicals mm -hmm. so that's kind of where i'm at with drugs i just am totally over it and as far as um advice i would say that don't be a sucker don't try to do it yourself. You're not as strong as you know you think you are by yourself. You're just going to get crushed by the weight of these drugs. Mm. They're chemical. It's like physics. Drugs get in your brain and they physically control you. It's like saying I'm going to outwill my own gravity to the ground. It's just mm. not going to happen. You can yeah. you can tell yourself it's going to happen. No, you need other people to stand around you and hold you up. Then you can get your feet off the ground. Yeah. So that's that's what I that's the main thing that I kind of realized listening from your your talks and thinking about how NA works and, and AA works and and kind of the recovery options that I've seen in the past is really that the thing that would have gotten me out of homelessness and despair a lot faster than seven years would have been having these types of, of discussions available yeah. and having a community that could lift me up. So do, I would say do it. Do they have like um uh, com like recovery communities in China? Like, do they have it just like they do here? Or is it pretty? <laughs> there's no drugs over here, dude. <laughs> yeah, there's like that. So, so there's not any of that um, really issues in that society because it's it's very tight knit, right? I, I yeah, there's no, they don't have that. Safe yeah. way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's not. I mean, I I've never met a sing. I mean, you have some drug dealers, but those are for foreigners. It's not for the Chinese people. So weirdly, you have like. Uh, you have some uh, people will come up here, Nigerians especially, will hang out in 
uh, like tourist places and sell yeah. to the tourists because huh. the local population, they don't, they're just not interested. They think it's, yeah. they, they have a much like more negative stigma against drugs than, than Americans huh. do. They don't have the culture of like, Oh, I'm cool. Cause I do drugs. They don't yeah. have that. Totally different. Damn. That's yeah. crazy, bro. Yeah, man. Well, good, good stuff, dude. And, um, uh, good luck with the book, man. I'm, I'm, uh, we'll make sure to, uh, put the links to, uh, to your book. If anyone out there listening wants to check it out, that'll be in the show notes. Um, uh, where can folks find you at? If anyone wants to reach out to you, find more information, Nathan, uh, where can they do that? Yeah. So you can always hit me up at, uh, Nathan online. Um, and then I kind of made my Facebook pretty easy to remember, which is just, uh, uh my Facebook is face, Nathan Rich and my Twitter is tweet Nathan Rich, so it's all right. And uh, my book is called Scythe Telepo, so that's S C Y T H E, and then the second word is T L E P P O. And you can get on Amazon right now. It's a uh, Kindle. The paperback will be coming out here probably in about a week, and then I'll also do a hardback, and then I will be doing a, a an audio version, which is going nice. to take probably a month. Yeah. And then I'm going to do a Chinese translated version, which I will have to rewrite to censor a lot of the drug related stuff because they can't, you literally can't even talk about it over here. That's how much really? they don't like it. Damn, so, that's crazy. Yeah. There are some benefits to censorship, you know? I mean, the culture doesn't exist here. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's true. I mean, that's a good point because my, my, my first thought was, gosh, the censorship. And we hear a lot about, obviously, in the States, especially all the shit going on right now, media. Uh, different countries battling it out, political, geopolitics, all that stuff. And we hear a lot about China, obviously, the social credit scores, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's, it's definitely interesting. And, um, I, you know, that's the first thing I thought when you said that, wow, man, just like severe censorship. Uh, but at the same time, um, to, point the, to point out the fact, like you said, nobody does drugs over here. Now, whether it's yeah. because they, they can't or they don't want to, um, I think that's kind of another, another um, little branch of that tree, I guess. Um, but that's a good thing, I guess. Nobody's shooting, shooting dope or shooting whiskey or shooting beer into their veins either, right? Exactly right. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I would just say also, just so you know about China, is that almost everything you hear in the news is weird, misleading, yeah. wrong, like, I mean, I, I, I saw just some video the other day on New York Times talking about the medical, you know, the, the crisis of the medical system in China. And I'm sitting there with my Chinese girlfriend. We made like a 25-minute video explaining how almost literally everything that, that they say in the video is completely false <laughs> or misunderstood. They have the wrong city listed. They're translating what the people are saying totally incorrectly. I mean, the whole thing. So it's well, so take it a grain of salt. I'd like to point out, and I, I agree with that too, with, with media that comes through, you got to be real careful on what you're looking at and who it is. I don't think the New York Times has reported an accurate story in probably the last 20 years. <laughs> so I, yeah. I don't doubt it. <laughs> yeah, it was quite shocking. I mean, it was just, I mean, literally it was like, it would show footage. And even I understood this much Chinese. It shows yeah. a footage of a lady saying, oh, all these people are, are in line and one of the doctors went home. So like, I don't know, how many can they see? And then in English, the, the subtitle says, yeah, the doctor went home, and so they can only see seven or eight people. I'm like, what? She <laughs> those numbers. She's not even saying anything. She's asking a question. It's that type of thing where they're yeah. making it sound worse than it is. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, look, recovery is a long road. 
if, you, if you're going to do it alone, you're probably going to fail. You need to have uh, other people to support you, especially people that understand and don't judge you for, you know, not being perfect. And, you know, I wasn't perfect. It's not, you know, my, we had to tell a quick version of my story, but I didn't just all of a sudden one day, hundred percent off everything. And, you know, yeah. everything yeah. rode off under the sunset. I mean, I relapsed tons of times, but it's about picking yourself back up and, and not taking that defeat. Nothing is going, if you are alive, you have, you have not been defeated. Mm, that's good right there. I like that. I like that. Well, good stuff, man. I appreciate you coming on, um, on that sober guy, man. It's been fun. I know we did kind of condense that down, uh, for those out there listening, the book is Scythe Telepo, my survival of a cult abandonment addiction and homelessness. If you want to hear the full version of Nathan's story, be sure to pick up that book. I'm stoked to, uh, that you're going to do it on the audio version. I'm an audio guy. That's why I'm into podcasting. So I will be looking forward to checking that out when it comes out. Uh, Nathan Rich, man, it's been, it's been good, man. Thank you for coming on the show, bro. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Shane. See you, everybody. Check us out at thatsoberguy.com. Connect with us on Instagram, at realthatsoberguy, and at Shane Raymer on Twitter. Peace, love, respect. Keep your blood clean.